I've got a background in self-publication, independent publication. I've obviously got a background in writing and editing. So this just seemed like a natural step for me to not just express my um, love for myself, but my love for my community. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We're the media-focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world, well, when we're not running the Publisher Podcast Awards anyway. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And how do you both feel now that the Publisher Podcast Awards 21 are out of the way? Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm planning for next year already. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm, tr- I'm just trying to keep that out of sight and out of mind for the, for the moment because I'm still <laughs> knackered from it. I, I just went really, really well, and I was so proud of this. Proud of you, proud of Esther, proud of me. Good. Not I have to say, credit for getting absolutely, like, ev- to getting everybody in live to yeah, <laughs> receive though, their awards. That was amazing. Even though they, even though they did from uh, from the Echo in, in a field somewhere. <laughs> yeah, on holiday in Cornwall. Oh, yeah, that was good fun. Well. Anybody who wants to watch all that unfold as though it were live can go to our YouTube channel. We'll include a link to that video, uh, sort of the VOD of the PubPod Awards 21, and they can be found on this episode's post on voices.media, and we'll also include a link to it in our daily newsletter over the course of the week. So if you are desperate to relive that, then please do check that out. So, but Peter, (laughs) looking forward, who did you speak to this week? Well, that extra ad you heard ages ago, that is from my interview with Gina Tonic, co-founder of The Fatzine, an independent magazine by fat people for fat people plus those that care. Uh, we spoke about the F word. We spoke about the influence of Pitch Perfect, being an activist versus being a publisher, fat liberation, and how inside every thin person there's a fat person dying to get out. Uh, I mean, I love all the interviews I do, I really do, but this one was brilliant. I just had such a blast doing this. You definitely have to stick around for it. Yeah, definitely. And am I right in thinking that issue two is sold out of the fat scene? It's sort of a... Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an independent magazine. They only printed 500 copies, but it was done in two weeks. That's good. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we'll check that one out immediately following our news roundup. But to begin with... The US and the UK's largest publicly listed news companies are now worth $38 billion more than they were before the COVID-19 pandemic. This is according to some research from Press Gazette, which found that uh, News Corp, New York Times, Thomson Reuters, Daily Mail publisher, DMGT, and the Mirror Group owner, Reach, are among those companies to have seen their stock market values increase since the end of 2019. Important to note, not every media organization has weathered this as well. They include, <laughs> yes, they include, uh, for instance, ITV, which has seen a reduction in its uh, share price as a result of a sort of catastrophic drop in TV advertising ad spend. But all six, they claim all 16 of the news and information companies examined for the research have recovered from the depths of the coronavirus crisis. So we have spoken at length about organizations like the FT and the NYT about why those guys have weathered the pandemic seriously well. Are you surprised that it seems to be a sort of across the board thing for every single one of the companies they looked at? And there's a bit of a thing that that surprised me when I first read it, that actually, when you think about it, isn't surprising. That's the ads of of Poise to make this massive comeback this year. Yeah. 
and you've got all these digital businesses that were re- were really hit by um, the ad decline over the last like five ten years that are actually suddenly like having all these. I think it's like travel, um, alcohol, and all these companies that are waiting for everything to open over the summer that are suddenly throwing like a year's worth of marketing budget at digital media companies. <laughs> no one's been spending. Oh, actually, that's not the point. People have been spending money, but no one's been responding to advertising in the in the sense that. You advertise to book a holiday. What? How are you going to do that? Advertise yeah. to buy a car. That, that's <laughs> well, it's, 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 all, it's all the traditional big yeah. ad spenders that Absolutely. just haven't been able to spend or haven't wanted to spend. But Jacob Donnelly is good on this in his newsletter this week. Uh, he said that people are getting excited about advertising again. Um, and it's come as no surprise because ads are a tool to convince people to do something. So when you couldn't do something, there was no point in, you know, deploying the tool. But now that it's starting to open up again, there's a point to it. Um, uh, so I think that's what's going on. And actually, Chris, what you said a little minute ago about sentiment is part of it. People mm. actually are, are looking forward to to spending some money on some stuff, uh, whether that's <laughs> going out for a meal or drinks or trying to go on holiday or whatever it is yeah because you you, you you were in a pub for the first time over the weekend weren't you yes well not a weekend wednesday you know a lot of people are kind of predicting predicting like this kind of roaring 20s economic boom like i hate it. that phrase though i'm gonna punch <laughs> people for that bullshit <laughs> <laughs> you know what the roaring 20s came after the worst single at that point human conflict in in history and people are comparing that to that. And it's just bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. It just makes me think about what we were talking about at the start of the pandemic, which was who's going to come out of this the best. And it was those companies that had that, that but, direct relationship. But also, do you, remember, do you remember what Jim Belton said? No. He said, he said that actually who was going to come out of it was the ones that had the most money in the bank to start. Yeah. And it it is, that, it's, it's people that have weathered it this far. Yeah, because they they've got the the reserves, if you like, to 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 do the right thing as they come out the other side. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that's interesting when you look at um because there's a there's a very good New York Times article that mentions the Roaring Twenties. Sorry, Peter. Oh, no. um, <laughs> well, in the headline it, as well, isn't it? It picks yeah. out some examples of publishers that are doing really well out of this. You know, Insider, Bloomberg, Bustle Digital Group. They're not surprising. They've also had quite heavy subscription focus this year. Um, but actually, people like Vice who have I think spent the last like three or four years really in trouble. They've had twenty five percent increase in first quarter ad revenue, and you know they're not the only ones. That like, insider's gone up thirty percent, Bloomberg's twenty nine percent, and and for that to have kind of come out this quarter before things have really started opening up is, I mean, I think it's encouraging. I'm going to end this on well, I'm going to end my bit on a positive note. <laughs> so I'm not going to undercut that, but what's interesting? <laughs> but so, well, just saying about Bloomberg being up twenty nine percent. And Justin Smith is saying, and he's a very, very smart man, he's he's saying, who the hell could have predicted that? These people, they, they didn't expect that. So what, it's just the it's, pandemic? It's, uh, no, the, rec- <laughs> the recovery. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the only criticism I would level at this is that it's uh, this is first quarter compared to first quarter last year when there were a lot of places like, I mean, you pretty much lost half a quarter. Yeah. I thought you weren't were going to end it on a donut. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, like people people essentially lost half a quarter because everybody freaked out in February. So 
Q1 for a lot of publishers last year was not pretty. You say that you're not the cynical (laughs) one. But I say it so cheerfully. The evidence is building. And now for the news in brief. Um, As we did briefly mention, the Guardian Media Group will voluntarily return £1.6 million in furlough money to the government um, that it claimed during early days of the pandemic to support the salaries of some staff. That's a good thing? It is good. It, it sort of belies the, um, once again, the Guardian's a bit of an outlier in terms of how it actually gets its funding. And so it's, it, it is good news, a fantastic news for the Guardian. Uh, it's just complicated, what, right? Yeah, it's much more complicated than <laughs> okay. it is when, say, a sort of privately held corporation, <laughs> one that really adheres to those tenets of rapacious capitalism that Peter's so fond of. It's different <sighs> than when they do it, when, as opposed to, you know, the Guardian, which is supported by a charity. Still good news. Other good news, record numbers of journalists have unionised during the pandemic. So while that trend was underway ahead of COVID, it has really picked up steam since. And the Media Voices take is, join a union. This is America though, right? It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they, well, there's two things going on. One is, they've had less unions to begin with. And two, <laughs> we're still dealing with the, uh, do I even want to get into this? No. <laughs> We start dealing with the Tory bullshit. <laughs> Being in a union is seen as some kind of social. It's a, it's a socialist plot. I mean, related to all this bullshit, um, there's been a spate of journalists um, who've been very honest in saying they've got to take a step back from their workload over the past years. Uh, two, in particular, one who we interviewed, Megan Greenwell, uh, who was at Deadspin at the time and then went to Wired. I've seen a couple of freelancers actually on my on my timeline in the UK over the past couple of weeks. Well, it's, you know, it's been hard work. And if you're trying to just keep the roof from the door and you've had to keep working, then it's, it's been brutal. I wonder um, how, to what extent that has been propelled by the fact that the pandemic has been very, very hard to cover. Yeah, I mean, the news cycle, and I don't know about Wired particularly, but, you know, the, the guys uh, we had at the old, publish a podcast awards from the new scientist and from nature the work that they've been doing covering the pandemic is nuts uh, so yeah you know i think it's it's legitimate to say um that you're burnt out mm. also part of what megan had written a, an article not long ago um talking about how do you do your real job when your boss is or when you're employing company, has fired all your admin staff. And that's a very real issue in a lot, not just publishing companies, in a lot of companies that there's a lot of those layoffs got made to support staff in the pandemic with, you know, maybe some more senior editorial staff or senior design staff or whatever being expected to take up the slack. Yeah, do more work with less resources at a time of huge stress. And the number of readers driven to reach regional websites from Instagram grew by more than 500% last year. So Manchester Even News, which is their biggest non-national title, had uh, I think it was 75,000 monthly readers from Instagram at the start of 2020. And they've managed to grow that to 320,000 by the end of the year. Ooh. And actually I thought, uh, reading this, what was particularly interesting is the fact that they'd, they'd tried loads of different strategies across all of their regional websites and basically picked the ones that worked really well and then kind of implemented the almost policy across all of them. Yeah, it's like A, B, C, D, E, F, G testing. <laughs> sort of went for it. Anyway, Mail Online's owner has filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google in the US, arguing that its coverage of the royal family of Britain um, 
was pushed down in search results in favor of smaller outlets. <laughs> oh man, have I killed it? Why is big dead? Yeah, it's a sort of, you know, we, we know that Google's search results are opaque. I just, it's hard, it's very hard to pick a site, especially when the coverage of the royal family that they're citing was used as a, a flashpoint for racism in the British press. So NFT is a bad idea to begin with, unless you happen to be a digital artist. No. Yeah. What is an NFT, Peter? A non-fungible token. He's got it. Don't be smart. I know exactly <laughs> what an NFT is. Okay, I'm, I have not got a clue. Well, I was on a... maternity leave when this came out. You have to, a... But you have to remember that my son is an artist who what? works in the digital sphere. I know all about this shit. I'm I trying get... to. I'm trying to make sure he gets rich so that I can retire. <laughs> I get. I get that. But like, they're not. They're not a good idea. They're not secure. The, oh, I'm not the creator about can. Technology about, like, yeah, okay. okay, they're also an environmental disaster. Oof! Get you? They are. Okay. Well, please continue with your most interesting narrative. Okay, an NFT, which is a bad idea because of all of the above, mm-hmm. is now being ruined <laughs> even more because dickheads at newspapers have been selling them as a revenue source. Yeah. Minting an NFT of an article and then selling it for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's just Uh, just insanity. So who was it that said NFTs are now worth more than the the journalism? Who wrote that? Uh, I can't remember who wrote that column. That was very good. And anybody with an iPhone, lucky you, because Mm. there are incoming Apple changes, which I believe are being released this week. Yep. That um, Yeah, it's basically going to ask you whether you consent to being ad-tracked across various apps, which... um, it's basically set to absolutely muller Facebook and Snapchat. Yeah, so I, I covered this for the drum in the week, and Snap say that they have various solutions to it, but Facebook have really gone on the offensive, taking out like full page print advertisements, which is when you know they're serious. <laughs> what a time to be alive! Yeah, claiming it's that about, they're on, <laughs> that small businesses are going to be hit by this, even though all the all the research claims that Facebook are going to be the ones that suffer. Thanks, Facebook. Thanks for caring about the little guys. Yeah. But anyway, good news for users. iOS 14, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> and I've I, got, I know my tech shit. I know you do. I, know you <laughs> do. Yeah, I never doubted crap you. crap about my tech shit. I never this stuff. Peter, I never doubted you. <sighs> and finally, quite a fun one to end this. When we talk about the resilience of print, we usually think about it as a vector for news um, and people you know, choosing to stay informed. But research, which has been highlighted by Neiman Lab, indicates that people continue to purchase print, at least in part, for the habit of it just... As you would, you know, pick up uh, a pint of milk as you go out. They just grab it on the way out because of the source of, you know, muscle memory just makes them do it. Unless you're under 50, in which case it's never been a habit. <laughs> well, exactly. So, but I thought what was also fun, and they highlight this in the article, is that but a lot of people use it because they need barbecue kindling. My uh, my mom used to make these little fire starter sticks out of newspapers, and it was an utter work of art. It was amazing. I'm actually, I might get a to do one and, and put it include a, a picture. Yeah, get it on a video and we'll put it out on Twitter. <laughs> nice. No, seriously, it was this kind of woven type. That was oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's editing that session? Yeah, it's me. <laughs> this week I spoke to Gina Tonic, founder of the Fat Zine. We talked about her aims for the magazine, the language around fat issues and the place of print in activism. 
First I asked Gina how the magazine got started during lockdown. So the fat scene was kind of my my pet idea maybe a few years ago when I first got into self-publishing um, and the zine culture through zines like polyester. It was just some, like an idea. It wasn't something that I ever really took that seriously. Um, and I talked it through a few times on the sesh with um, fellow like creatives. So that's where I met um, Chloe Shepard, who's a photographer and has made loads of her own zines and stuff like that. And obviously she's also a fat woman like myself so we always used to like just talk about the struggles of being a fat woman not just like in our industry as creatives but as um in society in general growing up fat having fat families just like being from a very solidly fat um Mm. background and then when the pandemic started I was kind of out of a job I was just gonna start doing freelance writing full-time and Chloe works full-time as a photographer anyway but had to move back home um for personal reasons um and she I think she put something on her Instagram story like oh I wish I had something to focus on and I was like well maybe now this is the time to do it it just became one of those things where we kind of had to we egged each other into doing it and then it's kind of blossomed since there so it's been about a year I think now since we first made the Instagram and the Facebook and we're reaching out to people saying would you want to collaborate on this project and we literally just sold out of issue two yesterday so it's nice how the timings worked <laughs> right so i'm going to jump straight in here and get to this this fat word um yeah as someone of a certain age I, 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 that to me that's always been a pejorative you don't mm-hmm. use it that way you use it uh you know the fat zine is the, the clues in the name um you're using yeah. it, you're using that term quite proudly but what what's going on there you know what what are you what are you trying to get at well in like so fat liberation isn't really a new thing like the whole body positivity thing kind of is where they sell a new bras and saying that it, even like chubby girls can have bras now mm. in adverts but um fat liberation has been around since like the 60s it's been an idea that being fat isn't a negative it should be seen as a neutral descriptor Lawrence Llewellyn wrote this article, I think it's in 1972, but it might have been the year before, saying more people should be fat and like this American newspaper, I can't remember off the top of my head what it was called. And in that, he's kind of saying like, more people are naturally fat and like because of the diet industry, they're not. And like, you know, that phrase, inside every fat person is a skinny person dying to get out. And that he's like, inside loads of skinny people is loads of fat people dying to get <laughs> yeah. out. Let's yeah. be honest, like more people are naturally fat and like try not to be because they see it as a negative thing. But what we should be doing is instead of using that word negatively within our own community, we should be reclaiming it as just like a neutral, yeah. a neutral word that we can use to describe ourselves. Like when you call someone tall, or if you call someone, say the hair's brown and stuff like that, it's not like a negative thing. And I think that's the point of using the word fat is to try and reclaim it as not necessarily a positive, though I kind of see it as a positive, but as a neutral word, because at the end of the day, if someone's calling me like a fat cow online, then I can be like, well, yeah, I am, what's the point? Rather than getting hurt by it. So is it in that sense, is it trying to undercut that? uh, I mean, I don't know whether you call it a stigma or whether you call that, that kind of negativity, but is it trying to undercut that? Yeah, definitely. It's just I think it's just kind of trying to halt it and make it our own, um, because it's kind of like in Pitch Perfect where she calls herself Fat Amy and she goes, "Well, I'm calling myself that because then you can't say it about me behind my back." Yeah. And I think quite a lot of minorities do this, where you take a word that's historically been used against yep. you, like say as a queer woman, yep. 
I've, I'd use the word queer, but people in like older generations are like, you should not say that. Yeah. I feel like it's a similar thing where if we start calling ourselves fat, then what do you actually have to say against yeah. us? No, I mean, that's definitely where I, I come from on it. I, I, you know, as a, as a 50 something white Scottish guy, sort of working class, it's like, whoa, you can't say that. <laughs> but, you know, looking at the cover, uh, the, the cover of the magazine, it's not by fat people, for fat people. And, and I, actually, I love the addition to tag tagline it's by fat people for fat people plus those that care and i just thought that was i don't know that it kind of took me by surprise a little bit why why was it important for you to to put that on there because there is loads of people that care about us and there's loads of people who may not necessarily be a part of my community but understand my struggles like all my friends um in manchester all of them are thin like i don't really have like a fat friend who I see regularly but they they care so much about like my struggle like they're really empathetic they understand like how much harder my life is because of my weight and they would never say things like oh I feel so fat today I look so fat and ugly today like they understand the the issue they're like allies to my mission so it's important to include them in our conversations and there's plenty of even in on like romantic levels and stuff, so many thin people get called chubby chasers or assume that they have a fetish if they like fat people. But at the end of the day, they they love fat people and they care about us. And if they want to support us, then I'm not going to exclude them on that mission. Yeah. So you just put out your second issue uh, mm-hmm. and it's sold out already? Yeah, so we put it out on the 15th of March. We did 500 copies yeah. and we also restocked issue one of 200 copies and we sold out of both. So what's the plan? Are you going to do more? Going to reprint or? Yeah, add, I think we're going. We probably will. We definitely will actually um, reprint issue two, but issue one, I think that's kind of over now. You won't mm. catch it, but I think what we're trying to do, or something that I want to work out, is selling the PDF for like a quid yep. or something. Because yep. I think accessibility is super important as well. So like on um, World Obesity Day, um, this activist called Scotty has this like um group called Scotty and Friends and they got money off Arts Council which I thought was really funny because obviously like that's the government and then the government are paying for the anti-obesity stuff <laughs> um but they did like a World Obesity Day hack and we all loads got loads of fat creatives to post about being fat and why we enjoy it and stuff like that and during that I gave away the pdf of issue one for free to anyone yeah. who like ticked a box saying I'm fat and I love myself yeah. um and then loads of people were like oh it's really handy having a pdf because maybe they can't afford the shipping to like america or australia or maybe they just find reading stuff digitally um more accessible because they have like um digital readers you know the voice readers and stuff for people who have um visual impairments so that's definitely like a next step that i want to take is making sure that it's accessible digitally as well as in print so if i had been lucky enough to get a copy what would i get um and that, i'll and send you a copy if you want <laughs> <laughs> so what's in there um so the issue's got it comes with like little add-ons as well so you get the issue which is about 100 pages it might be like 102 or something um of like um essays artwork photography um we've done interviews so i did an interview with someone who had one of the first fat zines in the 90s called marilyn Wan. so that's in there oh, so much different stuff so there's loads of poetry in there there's um someone submitted like part of a script and that's in there 
And then inside that, we've got like another little mini zine, which me and one of our contributing editors, Marisa the Dospina, put together of like a fat liberation timeline. Because like I said earlier, a lot of people don't realise that fat liberation has been around for so long, I guess, because most of our goals haven't been achieved in such a long timeline. Um, But we wanted to put it together to show like we've been fighting this fight since the 60s. Like it's not like a new idea. Um, and we also have some postcards from this Australian photographer and artist who is called Laura Duvet, who I adore. So I wanted to make something that went in the zine that you don't have to tear up the zine to put something from it on your wall. So you can have like these postcards and stick them up if you wanted to. Old school. <laughs> I read a quote from you and I, I honestly can't remember what it might, it might have been in Dazed. You, you said the more shit we can put into the world that someone can relate to, the less people have to feel like lonely little misunderstood <laughs> freaks. Uh, I mean, the, the point of that for me is that puts you right at the centre of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a real feeling, I think, you know, like I was talking about that tagline, plus those that care, and f- you know, four fat people, five fat, fat people, that idea of being right at the centre of that community. What, what, what do you see your role in that community? How do you see your role in that community? Um, I wouldn't like to say that I've put myself as a leader. Like, I feel like I'm just as much a, a part of it, it in like the middle sort of sense like I definitely benefit so much from my community as much as I put into it which is I think is why I'm so passionate about it like I wouldn't be even happy with being fat without the fat liberation community that existed before me and have have done the hard work online and offline um I just see myself as a part of it rather than like any form of leadership role I guess it's just doing what like I've got a background in self-publication, independent publication. I've obviously got a background in writing and editing. So this just seemed like a natural step for me to not just express my um, love for myself, but my love for my community. And that community, and I mean, print is just one aspect of this. The community, I guess, is connecting through the web on Instagram. Do you ever do any events or anything like that? Well, that's the thing, because we've been in um, lockdown for the whole time of of doing the publication. We haven't really been able to do anything, especially um, community-based, but we did do collab with um, Fat Life Drawing, which is an Instagram and website collective that do um, get fat models in, or just like, not models, but like fat people, to model for life drawing on like Zoom sessions. So we did a collab with them, and Marie um, modelled for that, and we've done, um, Chloe was leading like a fat reads Zoom class thing where we bought some like fat literature that maybe people don't have the money to buy. Like the old zines can be like up to like 20 quid just to yeah. get your hands yeah. on. So she she was scanning them in and like doing like read alongs and talking through like the language because obviously language has developed around liberation and um politics and stuff like that. So we did have done like a few online events but definitely in the future I'd love to do something like um like in Shrill where she has like the fat pool party and I've worked the in Manchester for Pride last year they did like a digital Pride and Joe Spencer and Niall O'Congale um did a fat Pride hour so they got like fat fat DJ fat people dancing and I did like a little speech that they showed at the time and they said that if they get to do a live Pride um <laughs> our this year they're gonna put a scale at the side of the stage and say if you're under 200 pounds you're not getting it <laughs> i love that like yeah a, that's that positive discrimination <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> give us our own space but i love them they're oh, class but they were saying they're gonna push for doing fat pride is more of an um event as well that gay pride which i think fat 
fat liberation is really linked to like queer liberation so it'll be really fun to get involved with that um I'm sure I'll be dancing and off my tits of that <laughs> this summer <laughs> I'm like I'm like I'm looking forward to that one. You should come down. You have to live stream it. <laughs> uh, so all of that's going on. Why bother with print? Why? What attracted you to do something in print? I think just physically having something is just as important as having accessing stuff digitally like holding something in your hand as like a tactile object let alone even reading and looking at it and knowing that this was made for you by people like you and those that care about you like we've said the tagline um it's just revolutionary like having like one publication that the only thing you're going to see in it is fat positivity it's just something that I've not really seen before. It's not something that I've had access to even. I'm not saying it's not been done before, but I feel like having access to something like that would have definitely revolutionized my life when I was a child, like when I was a fat teenager with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So I feel like giving people something physical that reinforces these ideals. Because I think a lot of the time when you access activism online, you when you log off you kind of disconnect from it a bit you get a le- like um you kind of realize the real world isn't exactly in the same bubble that you can be online with activism thoughts especially when everyone's voting in the Tories and Brexit and stuff you kind of realize that yeah. your point of view might not be the mass point of view so having something that um ties you to the physical real world as well as the digital world I think is important to have. Was it difficult? I mean, you, you've talked about your own background in self-publishing, but was it difficult pulling it together, particularly during the during the year that we had last year? I actually found the first issue easier to do than the second issue, to be honest. I think me and Chloe had like a lot of more spare time and a lot more like enthusiasm at the start of the pandemic to do push for something than this was yeah. towards the end. I think it's just been like quite exhausting by the end of this pandemic, which we're still going through. But after a year of going through it. It was very much like a bit of a struggle bus to get out of bed and and put the energy into this, especially because it's not something that makes either of us money and it's not something that um, is paying our bills or anything. So we're doing it for love, basically. I mean, I I ask everyone this question and, you know, for some people it is about the money, but I get, you know, you've just said for you guys it's not about the money. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you got any ambitions to, is it just covering your costs and getting the message out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love if it did pay me eventually. I'm not going to say that I wouldn't. No. I think it would be, um, I'd be lying if I was like, no, I want an article to pay um, <laughs> <laughs> But um, it was nice with this issue because we kind of had a bit of back. The first issue, we donated all our money, all our profits to Black Lives Matter because that was really right. important to us. And it was really like, I think without black yeah. fat women, we wouldn't have fat liberation as it is today anyway. Um, and then we... we with this issue, we told everyone the profits are going to go back into the people who are in it. So even though it's largely, even though it's largely submission based, and usually submissions to magazines don't get paid, we paid everyone across the board like thirty five quid or something like that, yeah. um, just so everyone got like a bit of money. Because I think in circles with this like kind of activism and people creating art, yeah, definitely in the art world people do stuff because they're passionate about it and don't expect money yeah. and it, it it's nice to be able to go you know what you've made this thing about being fat it's personal it's passionate it's something beautiful and we want to just make sure that you know that we can rec- like reimburse you in a physical kind of way as well as giving you a place in our magazine 
we're starting up the blog again soon in the next couple of weeks i've just had molly quick sign on to be the editor for that so we're going to go through all our people who didn't make it into the past publications and reach out to them and go look you didn't make it to print but we've got this platform and if you want to be on it you can be on it so we're trying to be as inclusive as possible and i think that's something that isn't as like often seen in the publishing world like a lot of publishing stuff especially in print is especially in print is curated like my friend who does polyester everything in the print publication is curated there's hardly any hardly any if at all any submissions that go into their print but in our print it is like I think 80 percent 75 percent submissions and I think it's incredibly important that we are well, I find I find myself very passionate about providing a platform where people can just have it without having to have like all these connections or a name for themselves or have work published previously. Like if you send it in and we like it, we'll give you a platform. And that's something I'm very passionate about doing. What do you think is the hardest part of, of what you do? You know, I, I don't mean that in the sense of you know, your workflow or, or <laughs> making enough money. I don't mean that. I mean, you know, in your head and, and the way you face the world. What's the hardest part of that? I think I get a lot of imposter syndrome. Like I feel my accomplishments maybe don't feel like accomplishments. A lot of the time I always think that I could be doing better or I feel like everyone, I'm lying. Like I feel like it's a falsehood when people celebrate mm. my work because I don't see necessarily see all the worth in it. And I think that's especially tied to like having um, a struggle with mental health towards the start of this year. Um, obviously I've had like eating disorders and stuff in the past. So tie, especially tied to fat, fat, the fat zine and fat writing it can feel a bit like um, I'm being an imposter when I have negative feelings about myself because I think it would be ignorant to pretend that I don't have those negative feelings about myself and my fatness but mm. um, I think that's probably the hardest thing is dealing with those feelings well on the uh, on the outside so lots of people I might represent only feeling positive about being fat when in reality it's a it's just a struggle every day. And you write about fat issues for other people. You write f- for for days, I guess, and and uh, you do the, the polyester stuff, yeah. Yeah, I've written for Vice quite a lot about fat stuff. So when they did the um fat, um when they did the new obesity like guidelines last summer, I think it was, I wrote a piece for like a long form for Vice, being like, here's all the different ways this is just classist and horrible shite and then I've done fun stuff as well so like I wrote one for Vice being like how to shag a fat girl and I was like just don't <laughs> <laughs> don't be afraid to touch us maybe maybe don't say how much you love fat women because it's not really like making me feel any better so, well that I mean that's a question I've got for you as you know me as, as uh, I'm, I'm uh, maybe not skinny but I'm uh, I, I wouldn't describe myself necessarily as fat in the sense that you are what what's the right way I talk about that how do I how should I talk about that I think just as long as you're using fat in a neutral or positive manner then go right ahead like I, I don't want any thin person to think oh well she can say it but I can't say it it's not that at all it's just about using it in a way that's not an insult so like if you're calling me a fat cow then yeah maybe don't say that <laughs> say that you were trying to like find me in a crowd and in your yeah. you go into your mate oh she's fat and she's blonde and she's very welsh 
and they can use that yeah. to find me in a crowd, for example. Like that's totally normal. If, if like, say, yeah. when Days did that feature on me, they were um, they were called me fat in it, and I think the writer was thin, so it doesn't matter because that's how I call myself, and it's a neutral word. But I also think it's worth being um, aware of what other people do prefer to be called because there are definitely yeah. maybe people like my mum's age where if I called her fat, she wouldn't be very happy about it. Yeah, um, but yeah it, so it's con it's context as much as anything yeah definitely it's context just as much as anything oh, <laughs> so what what does success look like for the fat scene what uh what do you want to happen with this do you want to you know does it get bigger or does it get more attention how does what does it look like i don't know because i feel really successful already like we we sold out in less than a month we have all these followers on instagram people are always very passionate about the work we do so i kind of feel like a success already as long as we keep trucking on with what we're doing maybe reaching more people maybe like the next print issue we'll print more maybe the next over the like next few months we'll get more followers bigger community but there's no like set like bigger massive goals really um, for the magazine because it's kind of achieving what I wanted it to achieve. In that sense, do you see yourself as a publisher or as an activist? Um, maybe a little bit of both. I feel like it's hard to call yourself an activist. Really, it's kind of like calling yourself a punk. Like it kind of can- feels like it cancels it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've definitely yeah, I'd say I work. I I just see myself as like a writer before anything else. I guess I think writing. Um, goes hand in hand with publishing especially the way that I've gotten into the writing world is through self-publishing so um, neither <laughs> I'd call myself a writer I guess neither and both yeah all of the above um, we ask all our guests for a media recommendation for our listeners uh, so some that you've loved reading or uh, you know whether it's a book or a magazine or some you've watched or listened to what what would you recommend to our listeners um, there's this zine that I really love called The Hate Zine. Um, it's an activist zine. Um, I've loved them for years and they are really active on social media about all the different stuff that's been going on with like food banks and in inequality in the UK. And I think they're a really great publication. I hope they do a new print soon, but when they do do the print, it's really visceral and dark and just interesting. So you remember we've been banging on about going to our Ko-Fi page and you can give us a few quid and that's you well we've got a new opportunity for you we want you to give us money every single (laughs) month so like a subscription that we talk about all the time you can go to ko-fi.com slash media voices and give us money every single month which we would love you to do because seriously that is the kind of money that supports our Remote recording setup, new mic, software, pubs reopening, pubs reopening, all that nice stuff. Experimenting with new formats and shit. And if you're new to Media Voices and you're desperate for more media, where have you been? Then, uh, yeah, we do a daily newsletter which contains four of the most important media stories of the day. So we're not going to fill your inbox with loads and loads and loads of media stories. It's just the top four, um, as curated by us. A uh, fun little explanation about why we think it's important and a link to the latest episode. So you can sign up to that on our website, voices.media. 
And I think that over the next couple of weeks, we're all going to feel just a little bit bereft because so much of our time was spent into planning and producing our Publisher Podcast Awards 2021. If you do want to catch up on that, we're going to be publishing the entire video of it, only lightly edited to cover some of my f***-ups, over on our YouTube, and we'll include a link to that on the site itself, Voices.media, and in the newsletter a couple of times during the week. But until next week, when we'll be back with even more Media Voices content, please do stay safe and goodbye. <laughs>